Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Pastor Bob last week spoke on the topic of unity as part of the DNA of this church. That Jesus, in John 17, He prayed for the unity of His body, that we would be one with one another just as He is one with His Father. And so the church is called to reflect that oneness of the one true living God. But the beautiful thing about God is that the God who is one is also the God who is eternally the loving, perfect community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the doctrine of the Trinity, that God, by his very nature, is unity in diversity. The God who is too one to be many and too many to be one. God is unity in diversity. And so this morning's message is kind of the the flip side to that coin of unity. And we're going to talk about diversity. Because Jesus also taught us to pray for God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That was the first song that we sang today. And so listen to this vision of heaven, the kind of heaven that we are praying to bring to the earth today. Here's what John writes down in Revelation chapter 7, starting verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so in that heavenly vision, what you see is this utter unity centered around the worship of God. And yet every nation Every tribe, every people, every language is maintained. It's not a melting pot that disintegrates everyone's distinctiveness, but the distinctiveness of each people, group, and language, and nation, and culture is maintained, and by its maintenance glorifies God all the greater. And so the purpose of the church is to present a foretaste of heaven on earth. We're an outpost of heaven on earth. That's the calling that's on the church. And so that's a desire that we have for NC4. As we look forward into the future, we desire, Lord, use us to bring a greater foretaste of that unity in diversity that glorifies you. So can anyone say amen to that? Amen. Amen. Now, we amen, and I amen with you, but when we look at the reality of what that's going to take— It's not going to be easy. It's going to be costly. It's not all going to be kumbayas and singing and hugs and, and, you know. (laughs) Why? Because we live in a world broken and divided by sin. And those divisions run deep. And so to borrow the, the, the term from Dr. King that we saw in the video, This is the first point, that unity in diversity requires the practice of dangerous unselfishness. Dangerous unselfishness. And so that's the title of my message today, borrowing that from uh, his speech. 
Because I believe that the only way that the church is going to bring the type of community that we're called to bring is by the exercise of that kind of dangerous unselfishness. The kind that Dr. King spoke of and that you see practiced in his life. And so, as we heard in the video, the scriptural foundation for what he was talking about comes from Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. So we're going to study that today in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. I'm going to read this and interject some comments along the way. So Luke, Luke 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. This is, you know, typical lawyer, right? <laughs> and he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so immediately you see this is a trick question because, of course, you can't do anything to inherit something. You're born into it, right? It's, it's a birthright. And so the, the, the lawyer knows that. Jesus knows that. And so Jesus turns it back on him and he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And there he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. And he carries on, and your neighbor as yourself. And there he's quoting Leviticus 19, 18. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And let's remember that biblically to justify yourself means to prove your worthiness before God on your own merits. And so Jesus replied by telling this story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he says going down, it is literally down because it's a 17-mile journey down this steep, dangerous path. It's on the edge of a ravine. After hearing Martin Luther King talk about it, I went and looked it up. Go look up pictures of the Jericho Road. It's really like a walking on a cliff edge. And so it says, he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. I probably don't need to remind you that the Samaritans to the, the Jews of that time were racially, ethnically, religiously hated enemies. They were, they were inferior. They were despised. And so for Jesus to place a Samaritan as the hero of this story is absolutely unthinkable to his audience. It's almost like going into a, you know, Orthodox Jewish uh, encampment in the, the West Bank and making a Palestinian the hero of your story. That's how deep the divisions were between these groups of people. And so it says the Samaritan went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And notice that the, the lawyer can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. <laughs> the one who showed him mercy. And so Jesus said to him, 
you go and do likewise. So, first of all, let's recognize that the lawyer's question is everybody's question. This is a perennial question because everybody wants to know, how can I be in God's good graces? How can I be a good person? That's how we talk about it these days. And so, that's a question we still have today. And I think just like the lawyer, American culture in particular is extremely practical, right? Whenever there's an issue, we want to know, okay, how, how do we get down to business here? What is the quickest, most efficient, most painless way to solve this problem? And so the answer is love God, love people. Okay. Simple enough, right? Easy enough. But then comes the follow-up question. Well, what are the limits of my liability here, God? You know, what are the terms and conditions on this fire insurance that I'm, I'm thinking about purchasing? <laughs> and so the first thing that Jesus affirms is this. Unselfish love of neighbor is not optional. It goes hand in hand with love of God. Unselfish love of neighbor goes hand in hand with love of God. And so that leads us to the second question. Who exactly is my neighbor then? How far does my duty of care extend? And so the first thing we notice as Jesus launches into this story is that there's no details given about this man on the road to Jericho. We don't know anything about him. All that we know is that he's a certain man. He gets robbed, he gets stripped, he's beaten, he's left for dead. And that's all we know about him. And so the priest comes along, and, and a priest in that time would be wealthy. They were upper class of society. And so he would not be on foot. He'd be riding on an animal. He's riding past. He very well could stop and pick up the man. But he's faced with that question, is this man my neighbor? Because he knows that Leviticus 19.18 says, an Israelite, a son of your own people, the neighbor that you should love as yourself. And so that's the type of person he knows he's duty-bound to help, a son of his own people. But how is he to tell whether this is a son of his own people? The man's clothes have been stripped, the clothes that would have displayed his nationality. Um, he's, he's knocked unconscious. He can't speak to him and hear his accent or the language that he speaks that would tell him his ethnicity. His stuff has been robbed, so he can't tell what profession he might be. And so the priest immediately becomes aware of his liability. And you can imagine him saying, well, maybe he's dead. If I touch him, who wants to deal with all that paperwork? You know, I'll be unclean. I can't offer sacrifices. I can't distribute alms to the poor. I'll have to quarantine for a week. Uh, literally, <laughs> what about my congregation? And besides, you know, I, I can't even tell if he's really one of my own anyway, so it's better not to risk it. So then comes the Levite, and the Levites were basically assistants to the priests in the temple worship. And so he's following along behind the priest that he's no doubt, you know, in assistance of. And he sees that clearly the priest passed this man by. And so the Levite thinks to himself, well, who am I to do what the priest clearly chose not to do? You know, am I going to be an upstart Levite, being more of a goody two-shoes than the priest? <laughs> 
But he would ask himself the same thing. The priest and the Levite basically ask, is this my neighbor? Is this my fellow Israelite whom I'm uh, duty-bound to help? That almost came out very wrong. (laughs) Is this my neighbor whom I'm duty-bound to help? And they've got no information to go on, so they choose not to take the risk. They see the need, but they decide it's not on them. Now, when you hear these kinds of stories, these things usually come in threes, right? So you've got Goldilocks and the three bears. You've got the the three little pigs. And so the, the audience listening to Jesus, they would expect the next person to be an ordinary Jewish layman because that's the third person, the third type of person that was participating in the temple worship. You have the priests, the Levites, and the layman that would bring the sacrifices to be offered. And so instead of an ordinary Jewish layman that they would be able to identify with, along comes a Samaritan, a hated Samaritan. And so what you see in this, this passage, there's, there's a, a literary technique called inverted parallelism. It's where you get a list of elements in the story, and then there's a, a central hinge point, and then you have that same list repeated in reverse order to parallel it. And so what you see is that the Samaritan parallels everything that the priest and the Levite failed to do, the Samaritan parallels with action. And so where the robbers came in, to steal, to injure, to make sure that the man was knocked down and couldn't get up. At the end, it's mirrored by a Samaritan who comes near to heal, to restore, to provide so that the man can get back up on his feet. When the priest comes along and he does not get off his steed to help the man in need, the Samaritan stops, comes down from his animal, places the man on his steed and rides him into town into safety. The Levite who comes and fails to stop and bind up the man's wounds, the Samaritan comes along, binds them up, anoints them, sanitizes them with wine and oil. And so in the the center of that, the hinge verse is that the Samaritan stopped and had compassion. He had compassion. That is the main focal point of the passage that our eyes are meant to be drawn to. And so Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, this is, this is one of these stories that is absorbed into our cultural consciousness. Everyone knows what a good Samaritan is, right? We like to take these simplistic morals out of these things. And so, simple, right? Just when you see someone in need, help them. The problem is, what the Samaritan does is by no means easy. It comes at great personal cost to him. It costs him his time. It disrupts his plans. It costs him his resources, his skills, and it, he puts his own life at risk as a Samaritan man taking, this, 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 uh, taking him into a, uh, a Jewish village to be cared for. And so what we see is this. The kind of love that bridges divides is costly and often dangerous. So the first half of the video that we watched, it contains some of the most famous words of the 20th century, the I have a dream speech. These are words that captured the heart of the nation in 1963, and they were followed by these landmark pieces of legislation, the Voting Rights Act 1965, the Civil Rights Act 1964, and these are some of the greatest legislative achievements of the civil rights movement that King was kind of the the, uh, honorary leader of. And so... The second section of what we read, of of what we saw in that video, 
It was taken from King's last speech. The speech delivered just hours before he was gunned down on the steps of the Lorraine Motel. And that's known as the I've been to the mountaintop speech. And it's, this is five years later, after those, those, those heady times of 1963. And what we see is a reflection of a, a less optimistic Dr. King. In fact, he, he told an interviewer shortly before his death that he had mostly lost his optimism from those earlier days. And so you see him referring to himself as Moses, as we see him at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, when God takes Moses up to the top of Mount Nebo and he shows him the promised land. And yet he says, Moses, you will not be entering that promised land. And it's just chilling to think that hours after he said this, he was gone. And so the irony of all this, of course, is that Dr. King was the one that was known as the preacher of love and peace and nonviolence. And yet at this point in his life, what he found was that the level of hatred, the level of animosity, the level of resistance that he was facing was so strong that he had lost his optimism. The reason was because he was pressing beyond the kind of overt legislative problems of the South into the more complex, hidden, nuanced racism of the North. He set up shop in Chicago. He was dealing with poverty, housing. And the polls showed, when you look back at those times, the polls showed that he was actually the most hated public figure in the United States at that time. On the right, they called him a, a communist radical. On the left, they called him an Uncle Tom. He's too soft. And so it's, it's funny today when people say, well, if, if only the present social justice movement would have someone like Dr. King to lead it. And we forget that at the time, he was absolutely hated by the majority of the country. But the thing that King, that drove him is this vision of what he called the beloved community. And he knew that to create beloved community, it was, it was not enough to just get the right to vote. It was not enough to just end uh, Jim Crow segregation. And what he said was, those kind of foundational things, they could be granted without much personal cost to the average person. But the kind of true justice that's needed to build true community would be much costlier to the average person. It would ruffle a lot more feathers, in other words. And so in the face of all that, knowing that any day could be his last, what he says is his final charge is that we must develop a dangerous unselfishness. A dangerous unselfishness. In other words, a kind of concern for the other to do what's right, even if it's costly, even if it might cost your life as it did his. Now, when you look at the, the words of these speeches, and we look especially at the, the I Have a Dream speech, and we see his vision of a just and flourishing society. Looking back after, the, you know, it's 52 years since his death, we can see so many ways that our society has grown and advanced and ways in which progress has been made toward that vision. I mean, just one example that hits home for me that just a generation ago, during that time when the words of that speech were delivered, my, my marriage to Selena would have been illegal in many states in our country. Thank God, I'm personally very grateful 
that we have progressed far beyond that. Thank God. (laughs) And yet, we look around our nation and we continue to be surrounded by all kinds of injustice that are yet to be tackled. Why? Because they're, they're more complex. So let me give you one example that, that I found quite eye-opening. This hits closer to home. And a lot of you may realize this. I didn't realize this. And I imagine some of us won't be aware of this. But according to the recent census data, you can go look all this stuff up on Census Reporter. There's a quarter million people that live within the bounds of Allentown, Bethlehem, Easton. Now, that's, that's not including the whole Lehigh Valley. That would be almost twice that. But according to the, to the census, in Bethlehem, 12.5% of people. In Easton, it's 15.9% of people. In Allentown, it's 22.3% of people live in poverty. According to the, the, the guidelines of the federal government, live in poverty. That, that means a family living on less than $20,000 a year. For a family of four, it rises up to $26,000. Now, we're talking about more than 40,000 people in our immediate area. 40,000 people. Now, this might not be yours or my immediate neighborhood, but it's certainly within a 30-minute drive of where any of us most likely live. It's certainly in the neighborhoods that we drive through. You know what I know really just punched me in the stomach? When you look further into the census data, it also tells us that in Bethlehem, 12% of all children In Easton, 25% of all children. In Allentown, this is staggering, 34% of all children are growing up in poverty. That's 16,000 kids in our backyard. (laughs) That's why our backpack program exists. And so we know that there's, you know, poverty affects every group. So there's poor people of every shade and background and race and religion and all that stuff, but we also know that a person's race and ethnicity, you know, being part of a minority ethnic group is a massive determining factor in all sorts of things, such as generational wealth, the chances of growing up in poverty, the chances of employment opportunities, educational outcomes, your housing, criminal sentencing, health care, all of these things are massively affected. And so the question that faces us is, are they our neighbors? Are we called to help them? Now, it may sound like I want to give you a simple answer to that. But as soon as you begin to to press into that question, you immediately begin to see the multitude of barriers, the multitude of complex factors in answering that question. So you might think, well, I don't live in that area. I, I, I don't fit in. I would stick out like a sore thumb. I don't look like them. I don't know them. I don't speak their language. We have totally different political views, which means we have different approaches to how to solve these things. And so you might even say, well, what are they doing to help themselves? Haven't they maybe contributed to this? Or you might even say, well, we're not an inner city church. That's, that's just not who we are. That's not our demographic. And I think With those types of questions, you immediately begin to see that bridging these kinds of divides that you often find along lines of race race and ethnicity, they're massively costly. They're massively inconvenient to my lifestyle. They're going to impact my finances. They're going to make me unpopular with certain people. And so what that reveals, I think, is that when you... When you focus on that question of whether or not a person is your neighbor, 
and you begin to think of the cost, the risk, the inconvenience, you're always going to find an answer of no. You're always going to find a reason to say no. But what Jesus points out is that sometimes if there's no satisfactory answers to a question, the problem is the question. The problem is the question. You see, the lawyer asks him, who is my neighbor? And how does Jesus respond? He says, which of these three became a neighbor to this man in need? And so I think about this. It's, it's, it hits me that I look at my life and I think of all the times when I've seen a person in need and wondered, is it my duty to care for this person? Are they my neighbor? And all the while Jesus is saying, you are the neighbor, Ian. I am the neighbor. And MLK pointed out that the, the priest and the Levite asked the question, if I help this man, what is it going to cost me? What will happen to me? And so that is a question about my needs, my costs. And it's a question that leads to the risk aversion answer. But the Samaritan flipped that question. He said, if I do not help this man, what will happen to him? What will happen to him? And so the point is this, that I am to make myself a neighbor to those in need. I am to make myself a neighbor to those in need. And so the question is not who is my neighbor, but the question is to whom must I become a neighbor? Not who is my neighbor, but to whom must I become a neighbor? Which inevitably leads you to ask, how do I become a neighbor? And I think on that point, some of the simplest, most practical advice that I've come across, it comes from a leader uh, by the name of John Perkins. He's still around. He's in his 90s. Uh, he was the founder of the Christian Community Development Association, civil rights leader, recently was introduced to his books, and I highly, highly recommend them. And what he puts forward is a set of principles that he calls the three R's. And this is how I would sum it up. We become neighbors by relocation, reconciliation, and redistribution. Relocation, reconciliation, redistribution. And so I think you see each of these things in the Good Samaritan. His compassion was not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It was action. He says, it's, it says that he saw the man and he drew near. And so in order to lift in order to share someone's burden, you have to be close enough to them to help lift, right? This is the, the, the principle of proximity. The principle of proximity that Perkins calls relocation. And what he's saying is that if we seek to be a neighbor, we must physically make ourselves near to that person. Pretty simple, right? <laughs> now, what does that look like in everyday life? Well, it's going to look different depending on the particular calling that God's given you. For some people, it means, you know, taking uh, short-term mission trips or maybe some work project in a particular area. It may mean serving in a ministry in a needy cause, a needy area. But for some people, it's going to mean physically relocating to such an area. And it makes me think of, you know, we have our missionary prayer Sundays, and, uh, you know, I grew up in that traditional overseas missions uh, lifestyle. Those are heroes within the church, right? 
people that, that go out into places that they know are going to be uncomfortable for the purpose of the gospel, for the purpose of serving a desperate need. And it often comes hand in hand with you know, humanitarian work. And so what we need are domestic missionaries also. People willing to answer the call within our nation. And so that's a radical challenge to the Western way of life, isn't it? In fact, I can't think of anything more that brings up more challenges probably than that idea. The idea of choosing to live in a place that no one may want to live in by choice. And so it's radical. And yet when you, when you think about that, it sounds exactly like what Jesus did. The one who pitched his tent among us. And so you have relocation. The second thing we see is reconciliation. So when the Samaritan drew near and he saw the man's problems and he, he, he became a neighbor, what happens is his problems became the Samaritan's problems. And that's what Perkins says. When you live in an area, it's very different than visiting an area because when you live in an area, for instance, if there's a bad school in that area, well, now that problem is your problem, right? And so what that leads to is a shared burden, a shared purpose that begins to draw people near. And so when you see the, the Samaritan drawing near, his problems becoming the Samaritan's problems, that division and hostility between them as two people groups began to be reversed. His people became my people. The us and them became a we. And you should note that, that it wasn't just the Samaritan coming down off the, 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 you know, the horse or the donkey or whatever it is and, and uh, you know, giving the man a hug and uh, saying, you're my buddy, and then leaving. It, was, <laughs> you know, it wasn't just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It, it, it couldn't happen except by facing the reality of the man's true state, facing the reality that the man was in desperate need. And then it had to continue with beginning to right those wrongs. The wounds had to be bound up. And so what you see in reconciliation is that truth and restitution go hand in hand with reconciliation. They're, they're necessary ingredients in that. And the book of Ephesians, of course, tells us that the ministry of reconciliation is given to the church. That is part of the purpose of the church. We are to be people of reconciliation. And there's wonderful examples. You know, the, the best example that I can think of is Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop uh, of South Africa during apartheid, where in the 80s, a lot of you remember, I don't, but a lot of you remember, it was almost taken for granted, okay, there's going to be a civil war here because the tensions were so strong in South Africa. The apartheid was so deep that people couldn't see any way except for civil war. It was by moral leadership, Nelson Mandela. And then later on, uh, when, when the transition of power happened, Desmond Tutu, a Christian, was empowered to lead the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And it wasn't about throwing everybody in jail. It wasn't about canceling everyone that had done anything wrong. It was about an opportunity for wrongdoers to confess and find forgiveness and for the, the victims of those things to offer forgiveness and to find reconciliation and civil war was averted. It's a powerful, beautiful example. And so we have relocation, we have reconciliation. The third thing is redistribution. Because when you see the Samaritan coming close and, and reconciling, we see that the man who had gave to the man who had not. He gives 
his time. He gives his skills, his expertise. He binds up the wounds. He sanitizes them, and he gives his finances. And I think a lot of times we think only in financial terms, and of course money is is extremely important, but what's often even more important is the giving of ourselves in service. The giving, you know, mentoring, sharing skills, sharing financial advice over even just money. And so all of these things are ways to redistribute out of fullness to places in need. And so you can sum this up that neighboring builds community where people can begin to flourish. Neighboring builds community where people can begin to flourish. And so as I'm drawing this to a close here, one or two of us, if if you're like me at all, you may be feeling a slight tinge of guilt at this point. This, this, as I'm studying this, it's, it's, it weighs heavily on me, and I think that's, that's natural. And the reason is because when I look at these religious leaders who saw the need and passed by, when I'm honest, I see myself in them. I see myself in them. And when I think about every time that I've seen a person in need and I've decided they're not my problem, when I've passed over someone because I was in a hurry, because I had important church work to do, because it might have been too much of a pain or or just might have been too inconvenient. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's he's holding up a mirror to the lawyer who knew the law inside out, but he's holding up a mirror of the law to the lawyer. And he's holding up a mirror for ourselves to look in. And what happens when you look in the mirror of God's holiness? We begin to see that not only are we the, often the religious, you know, the, the priest and the Levite passing someone by, but actually spiritually, we are that broken man on the roadside. We are the ones broken and stripped and beaten and robbed in need desperately of a savior. In need desperately for someone to step in from the outside, to lift us back up on our feet, to do what we could never do for ourselves. And when we look in the mirror of God's holiness, you say with Isaiah, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Lord, depart from me, a sinner. And so a lot of times what comes out of that is the response of guilt. And so you say, oh man, I got to do something. I got to start doing something. And so you respond out of guilt and you, you, you go out and you do something as, as, as you know, strongly, as quickly as you can. And you quick, when you're motivated by that, the thing is guilt is such a terrible motivator. Because you quickly find out, as soon as you launch yourself into that, the, that the problems are way too big. They're way too complex for you to handle. And the people that you're helping often are not particularly grateful for your wonderful saviorness. <laughs> and so it's very easy to get burned out quickly, to become bitter, and to just pack it all in. And so guilt is a terrible motivator. We are the ones, rather than the ones trying to come in and do the saving, we're not the good Samaritan in this story. You know who is? Jesus. Jesus is the good Samaritan in the story because after the failure of the religious leaders, you see an outsider breaking in to save this man in need with absolutely no regard for what it would cost him. 
Jesus is the true and good Samaritan who came near to his enemies to heal, to restore, to set us up on our feet, who not only obeyed Leviticus 19.18 to love his own kin, but obeyed Leviticus 19.34, which says to love the stranger as you love yourself. Much less often quoted who stepped down from the place of privilege and muddied himself in the dirt alongside us, who sacrificed his reputation, who sacrificed his status for us, who paid the cost of our redemption with his very life, who laid down his life in dangerous unselfishness so that we could be saved from the sin that's ravaged us, that stripped us of everything that we were created to be in God. Guilt does not work. Guilt can't save anybody, not even you. Guilt doesn't work. We need an encounter with the grace of our merciful God. And it's then, when we've been transformed by grace, it's then that our compassion can be the overflow of what we have first received. Not a guilt offering but a thanks offering. Then, because we have been shown mercy, we can freely show mercy to others with no need to prove or to fix anybody because we know we can't fix them. (laughs) Only he can. But we get to play a part in that. And so let me sum that up by saying guilt does not give you the fuel to be a neighbor. Only grace does. Guilt does not give you the fuel to be a neighbor. Only grace does. And so I want to end with the words of Dr. King that let us develop this dangerous unselfishness. Making ourselves neighbors to those around us, especially to those in desperate physical need. In this way, we will seek justice. We will build the kind of community that is a foretaste of heaven that is a foretaste of that heavenly worship body where every nation, every tribe and tongue worships the Lord in unity through the beauty of their diversity. So there may be some of us here who have, or watching online, who have not ever experienced that transformative grace of God. And so I want to invite um, Dick Kovac up here, um, who would like to, to... share a bit of testimony, and offer an invitation to enter into that grace. Thanks, Ian. Good morning. I asked to uh, give the call to salvation this morning because uh, 50 years ago today, I uh, made a decision to follow Jesus. And uh, it was uh, the best decision I ever made, along with marrying my wife, uh, two of the most important decisions of my life. I want to just give you a short testimony, and then I'm going to lead you in prayer. But uh, in April of 1970, uh, our intellectually disabled daughter, Alyssa, was born. And uh, when we found out that she was going to be disabled, it was very devastating for a young married couple. We were unsaved at the time, and it just devastated us. We took her uh, down to Philadelphia to a prominent neurologist, and his, after examining her, his advice to us was to 
put her in an institution and forget we ever had her. Another point of devastation uh, as an unsafe couple. Thankfully, we rejected that advice, uh, even though we were non-Christians and knew that that was not what we were supposed to do. In September of 1970, uh, Anne was invited to a women's meeting where she was uh, dramatically saved. The result of that salvation was, was uh, obvious and immediate. And so when I uh, asked her that night what had happened to her, she explained to me uh, what had happened to her, and she actually, actually preached the gospel to me. She just heard the gospel herself, and she preached it to me that same day. Now, I was brought up as a Catholic, and I was 29 years old at the time, and I never heard that message before in my life. And so it made me think about uh, trying to assimilate all that was said, and then pondering whether I wanted to give up what I had for what I didn't know was to come. If that's part of the issue that you're having, let me tell you that you will get more from your salvation experience than what you have ever thought you had to give up. The decision for me was a major decision. And so five months later, on February 14th, 1971, I made a decision to follow Jesus. And uh, uh, I could tell you that, uh, that life has been filled, our life has been filled with challenges. But he has, he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And that was true for us. He never did. And so we persevered and worked through with the help of the Holy Spirit and with the help of our Lord. We worked through these challenges and uh, we've come out as, uh, as better people. So, today is February 14th, 2021, and it's Valentine's Day. What better day to give your heart to the Lord than on Valentine's Day? So, if you've never made that decision, I'm inviting you to make that decision today and join the body of Christ, or what Ian was talking about, how we get to love our neighbor, how we get to love one another, there's a spirit of hate in this country right now. We have to overcome that with a spirit of love. We are the counterculture. We as Christians are the counterculture right now. This is our mission field. America happens to be our mission field right now. So if I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. And if you'd like to repeat after me, you're welcome to do that. So let's, let's do that. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge that I am a sinner and ask you to forgive me. I also acknowledge, Father, that you sent your son Jesus to die for my sins, and I receive him into my heart right now. And just thank you, Lord, for sending him, sending your son to help forgive my sins. And so I dedicate myself to following you as Lord and as Savior in the days to come and ask your blessing upon me 
as I pursue you in this new life. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.